0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Future of Space. I'm your host, Daniel Fox. Our guest today is Dr. Christopher Mason. Christopher is a professor of genomics, physiology, and biophysics at Well Cornell Medicine. He's also co-founder and global director at Biosia, co-founder, a scientific director at Longevity, director of genomics at Tempest Labs, and recently published an amazing book the next 500 years engineering life to reach new worlds. Christopher, it is a pleasure to have you on The Future Space.
1: Well, thanks, uh, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, before we go into your um, topic of favorite topic of conversation, which uh, biotech and, and the evolution, can you share with us three words that capture the essence of space?
1: Space in three words, I think, could be summarized as inspiring, necessary, and fun. I think I would say that they, uh, y- we have to go, and there's a lot of you know things that can inspire us to drive and push ourselves to new heights, and then it's also a really, uh, exciting place to go.
0: Now, there's a lot of talks about the science aspect, the technology benefits. The stories that revolve around rockets and billionaires but can you tell us yeah. from your point of view what is the human story of going to space the life story of going to space
1: the human story really revolves around i think everything from you know very subtle and quiet moments of reflection looking at the spacecraft i'm not an astronaut but i have just hung out with a lot of them and spoken to many of them about the overview effect the uh, research they do on orbit, their dreams of going back into space. Um, I think every, actually yes, every astronaut I've ever talked to, if you ask them, would you like to go back? They all say yes. So it's you know it's a bit of an addiction, but in a good way. And so I think there is this this sense of inspiration, like I was referring to before, is that they are really excited by what they're doing. But there is also a real sense of of a frontier that there's a lot that's unknown, that they're exploring. You know, changes in states of matter, changes in cellular and organismal physiology changes at our, our body scale that we don't we scarcely understand and so there there is a bit of a frontier mindset that going into a very dangerous place and it's actually it's a, one of the more risky uh, vocations you can have is just to be an astronaut your risk of dying is higher than anything else any other uh, uh, you know vocation and so it is, it is not for the faint-hearted but it does push the the limits uh, I think, of humanity. And so there, there's everything from the poetry and art that uh, Dr. Proctor made when she was up in the Inspiration Formation. So there's a, you know, this real wonderful part of creativity and art of humanity that's up there. There's, the, you know, some of the fear that has to be conquered. There has to be, um, you know, also, you know, just just really training, I think, is the biggest word I'd say is the training. You have to make, do things so many times that you your risk of failure becomes extremely low.
0: Now, I believe that the, the last kind of three times... Two, time, two other times in the evolution of life on Earth where there was a quantum leap. There was really a big a big change in evolution like the one that we're about to see. Um, obviously, there was when single yeah. cells became multi-cells. There was when the fish came out of the ocean and then when we came down from the trees. And now we're about to take it from single planet to multiplanetary. And the the, the vision of the future, I think we don't, it's impossible for us to comprehend what is going to be that evolution because it's going to be so major. I think our, our realm of of understanding is going to be blown away.
1: What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think it, because everything, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in my book is that there's been these really extraordinary twin engines of discovery in the past few decades that are fundamentally different from anything that's come before, not just in scale, but also in type. So, you know, the ability to find exoplanets, for example, you know, the first one was found Evidence of it in the late 80s, but really confirmed in the 90s. And for a little while, we only, you could count the number of exoplanets on one hand, you know, in the early 2000s. There were not that many. And so now we have thousands and thousands of exoplanets, many in the habitable zone. So the idea of sending people to other planets was actually farcical for a long time, including a lot of the pioneering work by Carl Sagan and others in the field who, who were dreaming of these planets. There were no planets to even go to, right? So whereas now we have many uh, hundreds of candidates that we could go to and maybe even have liquid water, maybe even survive with current technology. But the other real engine of discovery is just about genetics and biotechnology and the ability to understand the facets of biology that that create and craft cells and responses. The number of genes discovered, the number of modifications of genes, which I also talk about in the book, is also has gone from handfuls of therapies and tools and technologies uh, to now things that are being done by high school students who are CRISPRing cells, making their own custom cells. this, This playground of biology has become ubiquitous and the tools have proliferated. So it's really a very different time now than it was even 10 years ago, but especially 20 or 30 years ago. It's really fundamentally transformed the view ahead in a good way, I think. So it could go bad. There are ways where things could go bad, but I think it's in a good way, uh, as evidenced by my optimism in the book.
0: Well, I think that's one of the successes of the human species is to take the kind of randomness or chaos of nature, because I'm not too sure that, Nature, I mean, what we've done over the thousands of years is take, be at the mercy of the change imposed by nature, which is usually you follow the food source, so you follow the climate. And then at one point, we start to create our own, take control of those changes and not follow them. And we've been building ever since on that. Every time that we're limited with what nature gives us, we rise above it. And even now, like every time that you're given a point, a, a place of birth, now that's nature that gives you you're born there but you go beyond it by moving to different places by figuring out how to get different food source and now obviously we're talking about the level of the planet so the leap is a little bit bigger but it's still the same function the same principle that we're applying it's just that Mm -hmm. it's going to be bigger now from the from the point of view of not that i want to give a personality to life but from the perspective of life, it never wanted to be limited to the planet because then it would be kind of a, almost a, uh, a, a stupid investment, right? Dead.
1: Yeah, yeah. It would be a... St- well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So that's one of the things that, and I think humans are the only ones that are aware of this frailty that, of life itself. And so we're the only ones that can actually counteract it. So that's one of the... It's part of the moral argument I make a lot in the book is that this awareness gives us a very unique Place in the universe, quite literally, the guardians of the galaxy, or guardians of life, at least in this galaxy and potentially others. But we, there, there is no other entity in the universe with this kind of self-awareness, as, as far as we know. Maybe they're out there somewhere, but we can serve as the caretakers and real shepherds of, of life itself, because it seems to be pretty rare in the universe. Again, so far, maybe it's out there, maybe it's more than we think of it. But there's the Drake Equation, the Seager Equation, there's many people hypothesizing about how much life there could be or might be, but. So far, it's just us. So in terms of the any species with an awareness of extinction. So until we meet another organism that can do it or create an AI that can do it better than us, it's just us in terms of having this, this understanding and therefore this responsibility because you, we're the only ones that can enact this change. And so I, I think if you were to anthropomorphize life, I think it would like to explore. It would like to go around. It probably wouldn't want to die. If you stay on one planet that eventually will be engulfed by the sun, that's basically suicide because if we can leave but we don't, but then we stayed for our own demise. And so I think we, we don't, I don't want that. I don't think other people want that. And so it's really just taking our, our own personal drive to survive and really expanding that just to the species. or something we do naturally. But adding a moral dimension to it as well is what I've
0: tried. To life, life doesn't want, obviously, all this investment into pushing the boundaries to evolve. It's to figure out ways to sustain and to move forward. So obviously, the this is one of the things that I tell people is that we are the ambassadors, we are the best and the worst of nature. We're able to emphasize its, its destruction, yeah. but at the same time, elevate this power of creation and, and innovation to new level. And I think we need to celebrate the narrative as opposed yeah. to say, we're a cancer on the planet because life is messy by, by, by design. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, there are many people, you know, there's misanthropes who think all of humanity should go away. There's people who think all that humans are not worth saving, if you will. I I think we, we are, you could very readily and quantifiably say we're the best and the worst of what life has to offer. It's simply quantified by how many species have we made go extinct. Like I actually, except for invasive species, I don't know if there's an actually documented case of one species obliterating and committing genocide on a you know basically a different species until we came around right so I mean it could have been and it certainly was always by accident whereas yeah you know, we've hunted things to extinction right so there's there's definitely uh, a bad example there but we also have resurrected species like the woolly mammoth is going to be coming back probably in three years or preserve those species that are endangered so we can do you know certainly the best of both we can kill and resurrect species we can save and obliterate species but hopefully we the, the awareness of this though again I think. You know wasn't until the past few decades i think much of this was done by accident or foolhardiness or just pure greed or survival people just didn't have enough food to eat. infant mortality was too high people needed a way to just survive for centuries for millennia and only again recently have we been able to have i think some stability for humanity that we can start to take a breath uh, and not worry that we're all going to be dead by 15 and know that we can plan ahead and plan even intergenerationally. that's all still relatively new and, you know it's been preceded preceded by like Jeremy Bentham and others who've thought about this for philosophy for a while, but it really wasn't possible until the world settled down. The other thing I'll point out is that we couldn't really manage or solve global problems until we had a global communication system and ways to coordinate with cultures and peoples all over the world, which also didn't really exist until this last century. And that was much more easy this you know, this century, but that's also relatively new.
0: It's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you read the, the book, the Homo Deus, the follow-up to Homo sapien, but that was his, his premise and where yep. we've been able to control these big killers, famine war, and diseases. And now the human cost of evolution is not really present. And even I was talking to other in the space, even the human cost of exploration will never... I mean, cross finger and knock on wood, will never be as extreme as they used to be because now we have the capacity to study and to send robots in advance. Like if you compare the human migration, uh, the, human, the European migration, you know, on the boats to North America, how many people died in the process? Because the conditions, first of all, of the voyage on the yeah. boat was super yeah. hard. You get onto a new continent, yeah. you have to start. But now it's not going to yeah, be that same. Great.
1: Right. Right. That's, that's a great, great analogy is that the, those, you know, those seafarers and those adventurers faced far worse odds with much worse technology and very limited understanding of even how, like, like the fact that scurvy was a thing. People didn't even know how much vitamin C they needed. Yeah. Like, you know, they just, you know, that was debated until you know Shackleton's expeditions to the Antarctic, even just a hundred years ago. It's not that long ago. You know, some basic things like that we didn't even know, like just what do you need to eat to survive as a human was still not fully fleshed out. Right. So uh, I think, it's going to be extraordinarily easier than it was then. And I think the spirit of humanity, though, is the same. This this drive to go to a new place, to discover a new area. And sometimes there's people that are there, but as far as we're on Mars, there's no people. But to really push the boundaries of humanity has been a consistent feature, I think, inspiring one for for humans.
0: Now, I want to um, pick your brain. I wrote this this little piece about how we will live longer, maybe not bigger. Because simply Mm -hmm. put, the scale of the universe demands it. The the living 100 years, living on a planet works because of the, the, the distances. Uh, but when you get into space where it takes 30 years, maybe 40 years to get from, I mean, you know, even with different, even if you travel at the speed of light or we'll find different ways, the, your, your, your distances are in a total different scale. Being an ant. Yep when you live in a little sandbox works but if you get into the sahara you wouldn't survive for one day so we will have to evolve so that we so that these these distances don't feel like they are too big like it becomes just like you take an eight hour drive it takes 30 years but you
1: you live longer because of the scale demands it would you agree I think you, you know, the living longer changes a, a, a almost everything about how you plan. So I think we, you know, we can make it so the, these long distances, I mean, some people talk about hibernation or other ways to, to get, I mean, do, do you mean sort of getting to places that are 30 or 40 years away uh, on a spacecraft or, or even as I talk about in the book, these ideas of multi-generational spacecraft or generation ships where there are four or five generations that live and die on the same craft on the way to a planet? which I think is where we may be in about 500 years, hence the title of the book. That, that's the extreme end of it, and that you know either we have to have those kinds of plans and ships or we need to have a five- to six-fold increase in the lifespan of humans. I think the latter of those two is going to be harder, getting people to live longer than like a sequoia. Probably not possible from things anything we know today, but having people reproduce and have cognitive and psychological metrics to keep people um, satiated and happy on a long mission, is something we can do. I mean, we've all... Whole, you know hold up during the pandemic we all learn how to kind of survive staying in one place we have a lot more entertainment options than we did again say 200 years ago you could bring a book with you but you don't you know only so many books in a spacecraft but you can fit the totality of all human culture and literature on a hard drive and bring it with you right so there's plenty of things to keep people busy and entertained uh, plus you can stream the latest episodes of spacecraft as they travel away from you so uh, if people want to stay in touch with Earth so I think it, uh, some of these long missions become much more palatable than they could have been even 30 years ago
0: So in our evolution up to recently, in terms of evolution, we were, again, at the mercy of nature. Whatever evolution or modification was really kind of biology happening the way it's supposed to be, until we start to change it. Um, Even, I mean, now, whether it's reproduction, nature gives you a set that's not working, we go above it. Uh, now with CRISPR, we have the capacity to change the, uh, um, the, the the nature of of our species. A lot of people are worried, rightly so. Um, but I do believe that the benefit outweighs the. You can't stop and not go there because there's going to be a lot more positive. Now going to space, I think that there's going to be a combination of both technology. And the biology, the biology is going to happen because we live in a different environment, but we're going to be assisting this yeah. evolution through the technology. Um, what do you say?
1: Uh, absolutely. So the technology will be, you know, myriad and ubiquitous and powerful. So it'll be inside cells, you'll modify and tweak and reprogram cells as needed. It'll be in surrounding cells and tissues. They could it be cybernetic enhancements. It could be external, you know, there's many kinds of new spacesuits. That spacex is designing that enable a much lighter form factor just to go live in the vacuum of space which is what jared isaac will do on the polaris dawn mission hopefully later this year or early next year you know just make the technology mix so you can get up even just float around space and, and have not have a giant uh space spacesuit. and then even larger things like the spacecraft are thinking about ways to redirect light to help planets be warmer or colder that's farther in the future but i think it's also just as interesting to think about that technology from the planetary scale to the cellular and subcellular, helping to keep us alive and drive things forward. That- but I'm a technophile, so of course I see But yes.
0: <laughs> well, I think that there's, I mean, if you really look at what we've been doing, that's what we've been doing. And we're just going to be doing it also in space. We've been tr- redirecting yeah. rivers, we've been uh, growing yeah. crops in places where usually there, there's none. I do believe, though, that there's the evolution of life or even our society on the planet has always followed a couple of um, uh, essential realities. So water, like even if you if you look at the way we spread on the planet, we always follow water and we will also follow water as we expand into space. We know that there's a lot of ice, maybe not running water, but there's a lot of ice.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, it's out there. It's out there on moons. It's on the planets like the, 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 the ice water is out there. Yeah. Or water, I should say. Yes. Yep.
0: And it doesn't make sense to terraform Mars because I mean, for the, the just the, the, the reality of energy and time, like there's no point of terraforming Mars. In my perspective, what I what I do believe is that there are other planet like the, the Earth. And what like the same way that there's one New York and there's one LA, but along the line in between, you have all these settlements that basically are outposts that get you from point A to point B. So there's all these, the moon, the Mars, and all, like we're going to follow these lines of ice and water that connects these, um, these planets of, of that are resource rich. Um, do you, I mean, mm-hmm. is that something that you, that you would agree with?
1: hopefully that, that that's exactly what happens because it just like again, the analogy is you know mo- people moving on the oregon trail or moving across the united states in their early days into you know territories they knew nothing about but had to find resources along the way uh, unfortunately you know committed some genocide sometimes along the way so that, again not the good there's some bad parts about what happened but in terms of the resource discovery and just survival we'll see i think a lot of the same things and it'll be You know there'll be asteroid mining there'll be moon mining there'll there'll be ways to make sure people can survive on their way that'll be you know hopefully will work uh but you know we may have to also figure out ways to do to generate some of our materials on the way and so it might involve our version of nuclear fusion instead of fission or other ways to control some of our energy uh, to make the trip but but yeah i think that'll be and hopefully there'll be some bars maybe some like cocktail lounges along the way too that's generally There were saloons there was beer and things like that along the way so i think there'll be some places to party a little bit too i would guess
0: yes absolutely there's all going to be it's i i don't the principles of evolution on earth are not different than the principle or the principle of evolution as we go to space are not going to be different than the ones that were on earth they're just of a different scale but it's going to be the same thing we're not going to be reinventing the wheel it's just that our our toolbox is going to be different,
1: right? It'll be you'll get more tools uh, from different planets' boxes, basically. So you will, you know, selection pressure and its variations will still exist, but there'll be different selection pressures suddenly on a new planet. There's acidification levels or densities of atoms that don't exist on this planet that suddenly exist somewhere else. And so, will evolution will still be at play as it is everywhere whenever there's life, but the forms it takes and the adaptations it needs to create to survive, I'm sure will be starkly different and actually lead to at one point I called it in the book is a cross-planetary directed evolution is that you could have organisms adapting, for example, on Mars suddenly have evolved over 30 or 40 years. These bacteria that suddenly have dramatically different phenotypes. You could sequence the organism's DNA, send it back to earth to then synthesize it and grow up more of that organism to then study it because on earth there's a lot more resources. It's hard to do on Mars, but you could have this real, you know, virtuous cycle of learning about organisms' adaptations at many different planets, and then sending the information back and forth as well as the synthesis capacity, so that you can study it across multiple planets at the same time. And you know, evolution has always taught us many lessons. I think we'll just suddenly have a lot, a bigger library of lessons from which to read, which are stored on different planets.
0: Now, technology has changed a lot since the when you begin your career, um, and where it is now. Yes. Are there like can you I have share less, with
1: less hair that's all for, that's just things have changed things have definitely changed
0: yes <laughs> can you share with us one discovery that you never thought would be possible when you started a career and now it is i mean crispr might be one of them but i'm pretty sure that you have other um, other ones
1: yeah, good, good. so I think, you know, there were talons and zinc finger nucleases or effector nucleases. There, there were tools that existed before CRISPR that conceptually could do the same thing, not with the same ease or, I think, you know, uh, specificity or throughput. But, you know, the, that concept was around. There's ways to do gene therapy before CRISPR could do somatic gene therapy with adeno-associated viruses and the trials in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, people have been thinking about some of these things, certainly for decades, so that's not totally shocking, but what I guess what's shocking is the ability to do epigenome editing is something that I think people wouldn't have predicted 20 or 30 years ago, where you don't, for a lot of genome editing, you'd, you'd swap out genes or you change them to get a new function, but you can also change how DNA is packaged or controlled or whether something is just turned on or turned off. So it's, it's in theory, less disruptive. You're not, you're not changing the genome, you're just changing what's turned on or turned off in the genome. And this has led to some really extraordinary clinical trials for beta thalassemia, for sickle cell disease, where you're basically, for example, we all have fetal hemoglobin. I talk about this in the book. When we're a fetus, you have a different kind of hemoglobin that carries oxygen to your through your blood than when you're an adult, which is called adult hemoglobin. But if you have a blood disorder where your adult hemoglobin is giving you the disease and causing clotting problems and other issues, one idea was let's, let's just turn back on the fetal hemoglobin that was turned off once you were born. And basically this is just turning off and what's called a, a repressor that keeps it turned off and so now it's turned on and the patients are doing great so you actually just just turn something back on that that you know is turned off late earlier in life and so this idea of, of the plasticity of the control of genomes and and using it clinically was a, has been a really exciting development something we have multiple people in lab working on uh, as we speak actually right down the hall so uh, this is really an exciting time where you can control i think you know, the language of life, the letters that are in the in the page, but then also how it gets read and and sort of real, the, the syntax as well as the, I guess, the forcefulness of the language and, and how the life manifests. So that that is something I couldn't have really expected. And then, um, I don't know, the sequencing coming down so fast, the ability to just do genetic research uh, really came down seven to eight orders of magnitude in a matter of eight years. So it was really, you know, it it was, and as far as I know, still is the fastest pace of technological change that ever has occurred in human history. So really extraordinary, especially as a geneticist, it's basically like a time of almost pure euphoria because you want to look at DNA, sequence DNA and manipulate it. And it's been, never been easier to do all those things than ever before. So it's been really great.
0: Do you, what are your thoughts about, as we enter this era of uh, like genetic customization, where diseases become just more of a challenge than the, the, the reality Do you take the time to think of how can we nurture compassion and humility in the world that it's so easy to become super arrogant and full of ourselves?
1: Good question I think there we even parts of the you know or could you crisper out anger or, or uh, you know cruelty out of people and make people less less pricks you know potentially or make them make them make people better or less violent has been you know people have talked about this and I I think you know some of the oldest methods are still the best I think people learning from old religious texts even if they're not religious some of the lessons are the same that involve humility compassion empathy just really trying to treat others as well as you think you can and also how you'd like to be treated and, you know, this is just the symbol of the golden rules. It's in every religious text that's ever existed, except for a handful. Uh It was actually in, in the uh, Anton Levay, the satanic Bible had it inverted. It was, you treat others the way you want to be treated. uh, If you want to, you take what you want kind of thing. So it was the inverted one religious text, but otherwise all the other ones the same. And I think, you know, just getting people to also appreciate the beauty of, of what's inherent in life, even engineered life is just as beautiful, sometimes more than what was there before. And so I think. You know, you know people think this seems odd but you know these strawberries that we all eat from the supermarket are gigantic compared to their their natural uh, no, previous normal versions but they're beautiful they're wonderfully polyploid crazy chromosome strawberries that are as big as your head uh but you know there was no uh genetic engineering there was just selective breeding over many many generations that gave you really interesting features so i think um you know even, even dogs like uh you know uh, french bulldogs that look really weird but they're kind of beautiful in their own way. Uh, I'd say. So I think remembering the beauty and being humble and being a bit empathic and kind, I think is good to remind people. I
0: think there's a there's a habit in in science to these zero sum um, equation situations and where things can be taken out of context and say they can live over there. When in reality, nothing lives disconnected from its environment. There's always relationship and context is so much important of that of that relationship. Um and there's always unintended consequences in the best of your of your decision. I mean, I often talk about when people say, "Oh, we have this opportunity of going to space and you know and decide how we want to move forward, then you know we want to do it with the best intentions, but I always try to remind people that always with the best intentions, there's always an unintended consequences, and we have to prepare ourselves with the flexibility and an understanding of how life works. Life doesn't want the status quo. Life doesn't want perfection. Because if, if there's perfection, there's nowhere to go. It's constantly mixing, th- creating disruptions and having tension because that's the only thing that can move things forward. So in your world, how aware are people of that dynamic reality of 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 life?
1: I think, in terms of scientists and geneticists and, and biologists and clinical uh, personnel, if I'm right here by a hospital, I think they're very aware of that it is a, a constant gardening that must be done to improve how we treat disease. Uh, I mean, if, we, if there was no human disease left and no one was dying, you could argue then we've solved a lot of the problems, but we're far cry from that. So I think there is a constant humility about how much we don't yet understand and this recognition that life even if you or even one simple fact is that even if we understood every single piece of dna and rna and every cell everything on the entire planet earth and somehow we could have omniscience right now it would be moot in about 20 minutes because things will start to divide and change and suddenly life continues to adapt so there is anyone who studies biology knows that even the perfect omniscience is fleeting because life continues to change continues to adapt humans included so i think that is, uh, weirdly comforting because it, on the one hand is this, you know, ceaseless frothing of new biology, new ideas, new adaptations. So, you know, certainly, uh, new challenges, but also new opportunities, but it also, you could say is job security because, uh, we'll always be, there always be things to study because things keep evolving, mutating, and adapting. So, um, at least we'll have things to do, I guess I'd say. So it's not so bad (laughs) as scientists, I'd say. But
0: so do you think as a, You personally, do you think that there is a point in the future where there, we reach a point where there are no diseases or this kind of almost utopian place that science can take us? Or do you believe that every time, every time that we solve or the technology takes us to a new place, we just find ourselves with a new set of realities with it's. Advantages and disadvantages, and so we're always kind of um, moving forward and dealing with different uh, problems. But the problems are always going
1: to be there, but for, with a different shape. I, I think it's the, 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 the latter. Of those there will, there will always be new challenges, new new uh, difficulties, especially as we start to go to new planets, where there's, you know, as I was saying before, different chemistries, different distributions, literally of the atoms different components, different threats, and, and, but also different opportunities. So I, I think that's, um, uh, but that's, that's true for life in general, I'd, I'd say. So that, that would be, it would be pretty boring, I guess, if that didn't happen. So I think that that's okay. It'd be the, again, there wouldn't be much to do if there's no disease. Most of the hospital here could just, uh, we could close the hospital and, uh, or most of uh, clinical medicine and research could be just for fun. And, uh, I mean, you know, research then would become art rather than, uh, for science and say like, you would be doing everything has been solved and known so you would just you then it would just be pure creation so you'd say well I'll just make something new because we know everything that exists uh but i don't think we'll ever get there there's always gonna we're always gonna find weird things living in strange places uh, including in ourselves so i think there's lots of discover still
0: i um i do believe that we will get to live longer uh much longer i mean you know in the evolution mm-hmm. but is immortality possible from my perspective I don't believe so because nature doesn't like, it's not to the benefit of evolution immortality. You want, you want to be able to have evolution. And if you have something that is just immortal, then, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't um, service
1: life. Do you, I mean, what would you say? Yeah, I agree that longevity will get better and has gotten better for the, all of humanity, except for a few dips like world war two and the recent pandemic, but generally it goes up. The, uh, but I think immortality, like we're not going to be like a sequoia tree or a jellyfish that can forever replicate. I think we're too complicated. Some people want immortality in the form of uploading their brain, like the the great single the singularity that Kurzweil talks about is a version of immortality, and I think some version of that might be plausible. But I don't think it would be the same as what we all think about as living. Uh, not yet, at least from what we've designed in systems of computational systems. But, but I think the, we would have to. The way to achieve immortality, we have to involve wholesale replacement, and restructuring, and reengineering of most cells in the body, which we're doing more and more of and getting better at it. But I think it'll be, you know, I think it's more complicated than we think because it's not just about replacing old human cells with new human cells. As we've seen from the COVID pandemic and other structures, uh, viruses get inside of our cells and become part of the genome. They become part of us quite literally. Nucleocapsids are those like proteins, part of the COVID virus, it's RCV2 get embedded in the intestinal lining and then they don't leave you know so as we age we just become this interesting molecular graveyard of things that have come and not left our bodies we'd have to get rid of them too and we don't know good ways to do that quite yet so i think uh, but at least now we know that there's weird things that we accumulate uh, kind of like a big piece of tape roaming the universe and we can at least see them now but so there's some work to be done there but we'd have to know all of that in order to um, reset the body and live forever <laughs>
0: I love love the metaphor of a giant piece of tape just traveling and really capturing. Because I mean, we don't see it, but that's that's true. Like everywhere, everything. And we need to be exposed because that's how we develop the immune system and
1: that's how our body is is able to evolve with the environment. (laughs) But but it can go too far. You know, it can go... But you need that microbial exposure, especially when you're young, is essential. And actually, one of my favorite clinical trials is If you take kids that are starting to get allergic to peanuts, and if you take all peanuts away from their life, they're actually worse off. They end up being more likely to be allergic to peanuts, whereas if you have slow, minute doses, which is now actually an FDA-approved therapy, they are less likely to have allergies and response and inflammation. So you do need this training, but then it, of course, can go too far. You can have autoimmune diseases where instead of having an immune response, it attacks your human cells, or you have an overblown allergic response. So uh, you need the training, but you need to... um, you know, it's like, do you want to get your training at a, a karate or jujitsu studio that's very controlled and understood? Or do you want to do street fighting and, you know, go with lead pipes and brass knuckles and say, let's do training? You know, you want it to be a more controlled training whenever you can. Yeah.
0: Well, that's the, so the Japanese have this expression, te no uchi, which is the perfect sword grip. And it's one that is strong enough so that you can stop a powerful blow, but once that is soft enough so that you can move rapidly. And that is really the, the 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 balance of life, and where you create enough tension so that you can stand up. I mean, it's a, you know a tree is a perfect example of how you need tension to build up, but you don't want too much tension yeah. so that when the wind you know then it breaks. And that's like if you if you think of uh, some of the, the the material, carbon fiber is a really strong, but has you know it cannot be stressed because then it's going to crack. So as we as we move forward, it's always balancing too much and not enough tension so that we can move with the flow rather than being, you know, and when you were talking about martial art, that was often the difference between the the uh, the Western, you know, uh, idea of force, which was brute and just like all in yeah. the power, yeah, as funny. opposed to the Western idea of, of Uh, martial arts where it was like moving with the energy rather than than just like trying to break through the
1: walls yeah yeah uh you know it's very different so i think it's uh you know this and that speaks to philosophy i think that that's that's just on one planet these different philosophies i think as people start to go and live on other planets there'll be different dialects different cultures different philosophies so i think that's part of the 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 diversity uh, of blossoming of humanity in different facets, which I think is fascinating. So I think we'll see more of that in the years to come, hopefully.
0: Christopher, can you um, take us like on your new book? Someone is going to buy your book, 500 years. Um, is it, I mean, did you write this more as a science fiction or what can someone expect reading the book? What's the evolution through the reading and what they can uh, find in it?
1: I, I wrote it so that anyone could read it. So that you start, even if you have no background in science or astronomy or medicine, You can pick it right up and then learn everything you need to know about the most impressive and even sometimes complicated, you know, really feats of modern medicine. But you know how they work at a molecular and even cellular scale of what's happening. So and the reason I I start from zero and take people through all the technologies today is because you need to understand those to understand you know, the light of what's coming in the few years ahead is that we can use these same technologies to let us actually live on other planets or even go to places we might never have been able to 10 or 20 years ago. So we have these extraordinarily new abilities to craft new kinds of cells, new kinds of genetics, frankly, new kinds of species and even to save species. And so the readers kind of walk through this extraordinary menagerie, this museum of progress that has been built over the past few decades, but then I take, it's, it's not science fiction. It's all nonfiction. It's everything that it is a reasonable projection based on what we know today as to what we can expect. And that also includes discussions of the exoplanets, discussions of the technology that can cure cancer in some cases, but it does have some fun parts. There's some odd things in there, like you try to think, well, could we have, for example, vitamin C? We talked about scurvy before. Why can't we make our own vitamin C? And the answer is actually, we, we could if we wanted to. There's actually the gene inside of us, what's called the autosynthesis of vitamin C. And it already exists in dogs and cats. For example, they don't get scurvy. They make their own vitamin C. And the gene that they have is also still inside of us. It's just it's just broken a little bit. So what if we turn it back on and fix it? We, you know, we're working on that in lab now. Or, or increase radiation resistance. What if we add genes from other species and put it into humans? I talk about that. So it's kind of some exciting, new, almost fictional genetic constructs that I talk about in the book. The most uh, I think comical one is the idea of being a, a big plant human. So if we had photosynthetic skin... You could lay out in the sun and he's like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go lay outside and just absorb light and have chloroplasts in your skin. Be like a green human, a chlorohuman. And I do the math on how much skin you'd need if you just want to lay out for one hour on one side. It's about two tennis courts worth of skin, which is a lot of skin. But then you'd be all full and you could go back inside and go in the shade. So there's some fun parts in the book as well. It takes from this, you know some places technical, but other parts very uh, fanciful and uh, exploratory. Very, I think, fun about what could come. And then at the end, it goes towards, I think, you know, there's a philosophy part. There's a bit of a sense of duty and excitement and optimism about our future that is really embedded in every chapter that I, I think people uh, people have enjoyed. I think more people would love it.
0: Do you, uh, I mean, a lot of people think of the human species as this static entity um, that is at the end of evolutions like this. Was the end goal here we are today but in reality the human body is still evolving will evolve even more now yeah. as we go to space do you find yourself sometimes kind of imagining what that what that uh, species of the future will look like if there are things like in your in, in your in your work you've discovered well you know we don't use our body doesn't really need these things anymore most likely they're going to disappear i mean I've had my appendices, you know, taken out when I was young. Obviously, on the evolutionary scale, that maybe will come to disappear, you know, totally. Like, when you look into
1: the future,
0: what do you see for our evolution?
1: I see a lot, a lot of excitement. I mean, frankly, there is, we, we are going to continue to evolve as we have, of course, in the past, you know, um, several million years since our last divergence from a common ancestor we had lactose tolerance for example eating milk as an adult was really unusual uh, for mammals but now we can do it but not everyone as well and so that's one or even adaptation to high elevations for sherpas or deep sea divers in french in in polynesia and french polynesia these interesting selection pressures that have come up just in the past few tens of hundreds of thousands of years we've already seen so i think in the future we'll see a lot of selection maybe the first actual selection for longevity, because since we're changing what the selection pressure is, it really has become more about living longer, not just surviving at all. And so I think we begin to see potentially real selection for which is unusual for evolution. You just want to survive, not necessarily survive for a long time because usually you're not reproducing. So we'll start to see uh, directed evolution as I think eventually also interplanetary directed evolution. And then I also think we'll see flexibility. So I think it would be sad If we you know designed a human being or modified a human so they could survive on Titan, for example, and like congratulations, it's very cold, there's a lot of nitrogen, but you can survive. But if you could never come back to Earth or never visit any other planet, that would be actually a limited planetary liberty. Think of like liberty is the ability to go do what you want when and where you want to go do it. If you're constrained to one planet, then that's less liberty. So I'd want to think about ways we could have adaptability, like I mentioned, these epigenetic methods, you turn genes on, turn genes off as you need to, to enable survival in different, quite frankly, different planets, right? So I think that is hard to imagine now, but I think it's something we're seeing already starting in the clinic. So we know it's not impossible. It's just about getting it technically right and making sure it's actually safe.
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean, by the way, did you, um, there was a movie done
1: with uh, Titan um, where, like- oh, yeah, with Sam Worthington, right? I think, yes. that, yeah, the same is basically, yeah. So I, I published a blog about this in 2015, and then they did that in 2018. So there's a producer at NPR I said, "Are they stealing all the ideas from your lab?" Because it was like something I we talked about before. So I said, "No, no, it's an old idea. It's like, I mean, they just made a movie out of it, but it, it was uh, something I've talked about before." And so there, of course, it it's a dystopian movie where things go horrifically wrong. But uh, yes, similar ideas. Yeah, definitely.
0: Are you um? I don't know if you're a big uh, film fan, but when you watch movies, are you able to leave your science uh, persona behind and look with a certain naivete of the movie, or you're like, "Oh no, that that could not happen. No,
1: no, that wouldn't that would not happen." No, I, I can usually. If I know I'm at a movie, I've you know there's a very a particular ritual. I've I've got paid a ticket. I've got some popcorn. I got some candy. I know where I'm sitting, right? So it's it's okay to take a moment, but at the same time, it's okay to have check marks of things that you think that's incorrect. I would change that. You you can do both at the same time. You can you can have your critiques and enjoy the the fancy at the same time.
0: There's always a couple of scenes in superheroes where um, the, the this Superman goes and saves a plane. And he just like he captures it like right in the middle and it and the heart plane stays you know stay solid and you go no the reality is that because all the weight is on one place it would actually break and it falls or like right fly right. flying down or rescuing someone sweeping them off as they fall and you're like no the arm would actually totally disconnect and detach there would be would, a right, right,
1: right it would not be possible straight right, right
0: yeah so if people want to find the book, um, it's on Amazon and everywhere,
1: right? Yep, uh, Barnes & Noble. It's, uh, you can find it wherever books are sold, uh, so, but most people order online. There's also the um, the ebook you can buy. And it's now also, it just came out in paperback, actually, uh, just today. So today is the release of the paperback edition, also with an updated cover and some updated figures. And it's also being translated into uh, Mandarin and also Russian. So it'll soon be available in other languages uh, later this year. Congratulations!
0: And what's next for you? Is there another book, or are you, all are your um, your companies are working on something that takes all your time? What's yeah. coming
1: up in the next two, three? Some years? things related. Uh, lots of things. Actually, a lot of this is really the commercial spaceflight sector has really exploded. So there are now, um, you know, basically. Inspiration Four was one of the big missions recently, that was done just with SpaceX. So we're working very closely with the medical operations team at SpaceX, and doing a lot of the aerospace medicine and astronaut biology, astronaut physiology work that we've done before for other NASA astronauts. Now doing this for you know Joe and Jane, uh, regular Joe and Janes who just wanna go to space. Uh, for example, Haley Arsenault is the first pro- uh, prosthetic limb uh, and cancer survivor astronaut who went up into space just six months ago. So that was, you were starting to see more normal people, if you will, people that aren't the most uh, perfect specimens of humanity, physically, mentally, and emotionally and they're somewhere between five foot five and five foot nine. because You can't be too tall or too short to fit in the gear, you know. So we're starting to see more people of different sizes, shapes, backgrounds, expertise, ages, and abilities go into space. So it's really a lot more work we've already got planned for the next uh, several years with the uh, Polaris missions, other work with SpaceX and Axiom, and of course NASA and uh, the European Space Agency. So a lot of work ongoing to study astronauts to prepare for Martian missions. We're also getting ready for Martian rocks to come back in probably 2033 and to look at the genetics of those rocks to see if there's any sign of life. Maybe we'll look at it. I was working with a lot of others, of course. And, you know, I think also just for the companies, a lot of the companies are improving the diagnostic methods that we have. So if you do get sick in space, you could quickly sequence it and understand exactly what has infected you. For the health side, getting probiotics and really thinking of every species that's in you and on you as kind of either a friend or foe that you could bring with you. And hopefully bring more friends than foes. So making sure your your microbiome is engineered just like your human cells might be to make sure they're tip top and ready for flight, uh, which is some of the work we do at Longevity. So I think all, all these you know uh, multiple companies that have spun out of the lab that are helping us to get uh, to do better work on on Earth, but then also to survive in space. So I'll stay busy and and play, just hang out with my daughter, go to water polo meets, um, learn some French, hang out with my wife as well. We all speak French sometimes and hang out. So uh, lots of time. Uh, taking trips on the weekends and uh, exploring parts of uh, uh, New York City. Is your wife is French or? Uh, Quebecois. So she's got the, you know, when she speaks French, it sounds like it's from 1820, which uh, everyone makes fun of her for, uh, but it's very cute, Yes. So,
0: I'm from Quebec originally, so I know exactly what you're talking about,
1: and when... yes, yes, when, i'm still I'm still learning it yeah, yeah, but the they everywhere she goes they they like, wait are you what that that they they pick up certain words uh you know like champur is 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 false, which is like means like you know crying uh, but it's a slightly different word uh or- instead, instead of we oui, it's way oui. you know oui. things like <laughs> anyway, there's a small telltales that yes we, like, oui. yeah, so the things like that
0: yeah. i uh gosh the when i left quebec uh 25 30 years ago that is one of the things i wanted to make sure that like people would not identify my provenance just by the accent so my my english right. even my french yeah. my, my french sounds more from France, and then Quebec, and then Quebecois, but right. uh, they're funny.
1: <laughs> you worked hard. Yes, get rid of it. good, 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 great, great. Christopher,
0: it was a pleasure. That was fun, and I can't wait so that we meet in in person and we continue this. Uh, both the the biology, the philosophy of evolution. Um, I I love anthropology and just the bigger picture of who we are as a species within the context of this world of life and nature and i think that the era that we're entering is just going to be bringing so many um, surprises challenges but at the same time discoveries that are just going to open up a vision of the future that is hard to imagine right now
1: i agree and i i think this this, we're entering kind of a new age of of these algorithms these tools these methods actually i do have a new book coming out called the age of prediction that's coming out next year so maybe i'll come back once that book comes out and uh, we can talk about that, which is how algorithms have embedded everything from medicine to finance to to spaceflight. So happy to.
0: Excellent. Looking forward, Christopher. In the meantime, enjoy learning French and uh, and say hi to the
1: family. We'll do. Thanks so much. Great to see you, Daniel.